as I mentioned this morning, the forum is really looking at a critical attitude versus an attitude of love. I'm not sure why they, the forum committee picked me, probably because they know how critical I have been. And they thought I need to learn, which is exactly true. I do, and I still am. I do not stand before you as an SME or a subject matter expert at all, because I'm still learning this process. And I hope we're all honest with ourselves and we'll admit that we need to learn this over and over and over again. So, a little bit of background information for you here. The contents of this presentation is loosely based on the book, Lord Change My Attitude, Before It's Too Late by James McDonald. Anybody ever read that book, heard of that book? Few hands, okay? The concept in that is that each chapter is an attitude that is negative. The follow-up chapter is the solution attitude. And so the two chapters that the book really looked at were replacing a critical attitude with an attitude of love. And the thesis for that section was a continuously critical attitude toward those around me will consume all that is healthy and joy-producing in my life. In this presentation, remember this, because I know somebody's going to raise their hand and say, you can be constructive in your criticism. Absolutely. In this presentation, we're talking about negative criticism. We're keeping it in the negative context, and that's how we'll examine it as such. How many of you have seen this tapestry and understand what this is trying to describe? Wonderful. Neither did I. Oh, there is one. What is it? You can't please everybody. That's the final word from Aesop's fable here. And Aesop's fable here was, there was a, an old man, his son, and a donkey. And as they traveled through each town, they received criticism along the way. And they saw the old man on the donkey and they said, oh, what kind of an old man lets his kid walk while he rides on the donkey? So they switch places. They get to the next town and they say, huh, what kind of a kid sits on the donkey and makes the old man walk? They get to the next town and they say, wow, they really overburdened that donkey, old man and young man. So they go to the next town, they're walking behind the donkey, and the people say, what a waste of a donkey. Why are they walking behind it? And then this is where the fable ends. They decide, you know what, fine, let's satisfy them. We're going to carry the donkey. <laughs> and in the last town they get there, and the people say, how ridiculous are these people? And so the moral of the story is right. You can't please everybody. But there's also a follow-up to that is, we will make a criticism or a judgment and you're going to receive them regardless of what you do. What is an attitude? Because we're talking about a critical attitude, we have to define kind of what an attitude is. How many of you believe that you're born with your attitude? Or, <laughs> I inherited my attitude. Nobody, good. How many believe that you choose your attitude? Wonderful. Because until we admit that we choose our attitudes, we can't change them. So. What is an attitude? It's a manner, a disposition, a feeling with regard to a person or thing, a tendency or orientation, especially of the mind. Remember that. We choose our attitude. It's not something we're born with. It's not something that we inherit. <clears throat> Here's a key. Circumstances and environments do play a role, and it's a pattern of thinking. Our attitude is based on a pattern of thinking over long periods of time. And you watch the children of Israel from Egypt to the promised land, and you see the attitude change as things change around them, and they choose to murmur, and they choose to complain. But like I said, our attitude won't change until we admit that we choose it. Remember this, and this is huge. Outlook often, it doesn't always, but outlook often determines outcome. If I am going to look at a matter with an attitude 
negative, positive, it typically will determine the reality. So, this was an interesting point that was made. Complaining tends to relate to situations. We complain about the external things, right? But when we criticize, it tends to relate to people. And so you see here, how many of us have had the beam syndrome? Here, let me help you with that speck in your eye. And we smack each other. Notwithstanding, the concept of personal ownership or responsibility is no way intended to ignore the role of background influences on our attitudes. Some of us struggle, and this was personal for me, some of us struggle more than others with our attitudes because of the cultures we're from, the homes we were raised in, the churches we attend in our formative years. It has a lot to do with the way I look at other people and interact with them. Remember that. So, what is a criticism? Well, here's a quick definition. Maybe not so quick. But here's where it comes from. It comes from the, uh, the English word criticism. comes from the word, French word, critique. And in turn, that word was expressed in Latin roots, criticus, which means a judger, a decider, or critic. And even earlier than that, in the classical Greek, we see words like kritos, means judge. Often in the uh, King James Version, the New Testament, when you look at the word judge, that's the word that you find is kritos. This is what's interesting, and you need to remember this for a slide that comes down the road. The word kritikos is the only time it's defined as criticism. The one that is able, or the one that is the critic, if you will, is able to make judgments. Other related Greek terms that you'll also find are crinian, Cray is the derivative, and crisis. So literally, judgment, separate, distinguish, discriminate. That's, sorry, the high-level stuff that I uh, promised I wouldn't talk about too much. Interesting. These aren't spiritual gifts, and these aren't positions in the church. But how many of us have got together as a group? We've made a verdict, but we did it together. How many of us have played the role of the judge? This is it. Guilty as charged. God forbid. But how many of us have been the executioner and said, I'm going to exact that judgment that we've come up with? So, what is a critical attitude then? And this is kind of a... Uh, a, not, not a broad definition, it's actually a developed definition, really, and it's not mine, I borrowed it. It's a choice, we talked about our attitude as being a choice, but it's a choice to dwell. It's a choice to dwell upon the perceived fault of another with no view to their good. And so, how many of us are analytical in the room? We like to think. We stay up at night recounting all the things we've encountered, right? We can't help that. But what we can choose is to continually think negative on those things. And Philippians 4, 8 tells us how we ought to think, right? Think on those things that are true and just and lovely and so forth. So, dwelling. Perceived faults. And this is what's key about this definition. I dwell, I choose to dwell upon a perceived fault. I might not have the full story. I might not know the intention. So it's only a perception that I have of really perhaps of what's happening. So, my perception of what is wrong might not necessarily be accurate. With no view to their good. Why do I say that? Well, we ask ourselves right away, how can I help a person if I don't dwell upon what they're doing? Right? I have to think about it. I have to look upon it. Well, it's not a sin or not a criticism to dwell upon a fault you observe in someone provided you're going to do the following two things. Number one, I'm going to pray about it. And number two, 
I'm going to pursue a solution. And so you say, well, the best solution is, let's go talk to somebody about it. Because that's, I want to make sure that I'm getting the right pulse here. I didn't see something wrong. I wasn't, I wasn't confused. So what about talking to a third party about the perceived fault I observed? Well, it's only wrong if my intention is not to help. If you are not clear about your motives in sharing the situation with a third party, then you are probably practicing gossip and not coming with a genuine spirit of help. Remember that. If my intentions are not clear of why I'm going to that third party, I didn't pray about it, I'm not here to find a solution, I'm probably practicing gossip and I'm not offering a genuine spirit of help. And so that's why the definition says, with no view to their good. Here it is, the checklist. Who loves the checklist? I hate the checklist. The checklist is real. And I don't remember where I found this, but when I did, I said, wow, I got to write that down. Here we go. Ready? Do I have a critical attitude? Do I secretly believe that I'm better than others? Do I make assumptions about others without knowing the facts? Do I obtain revenge for a personal offense? Do I kid with the intent to hurt? Do I envy the success of others? Do I shift personal blame to others? Do I camouflage personal discontentment? Do I rebel against and resist authority? Do I employ sarcasm as a source of humor? How many have heard the saying, many a truths have been said in jest? Right? But we think we're just joking about it. And, and at our team huddles in the morning, we, we often remind ourselves, you know, hey guys, sarcasm is a cancer in the workplace. Okay? We think we're joking, but we're really tearing down. But we thought it was funny to make fun of the guy at the morning meeting. How about here at camp? We think it's funny to make fun of the brother or sister. It was just a joke. They'll get over it. Do I elevate self by putting others down? And lastly, do I nurture perfectionist tendencies to make myself look better? What does that spell? Smokescreen. Am I hiding there? Does this define who I am? Open your Bibles if you'd like to read this passage along with us, but it's going to be on the screen, just so you know. This is the portion of Scripture. We're in the wilderness. We have three siblings, Moses, Miriam, and Aaron. And it reads as follows. And Miriam and Aaron spake against Moses because of the Ethiopian wo- wo- because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. And they said, Hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Hath he not spoken also by us? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were on the face of the earth. And the Lord spake suddenly unto Moses and unto unto Miriam, Come out ye three unto the tabernacle of the congregation. And they three came out. The Lord came down in the pillar of the cloud, stood in the door of the tabernacle, called Miriam, and they both came forth. And he said, Hear now my words. If there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known unto him in a vision and will speak unto him in a dream. My servant Moses is not so, who is faithful in all mine house. With him will I speak mouth to mouth, even apparently and not in dark speeches, and the similitude of the Lord shall behold. Wherefore, then were ye not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? 
And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. And the cloud departed from off the tabernacle. And behold, Miriam became leprous as snow. And Aaron looked upon Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said unto Moses, Alas, my Lord, I beseech thee, lay not the sin upon us, wherein we have done foolishly, and wherein we have sinned. Let her not be as one dead, of whom the flesh is half consumed, when he cometh out of his mother's womb. And Moses cried unto the Lord, saying, Heal her now, O God, I beseech thee. And the Lord said unto Moses, If her father had spit in her face, she should not be ashamed seven days. Let her be shut out from the camp seven days, and after that let her be received in again. And Miriam was shut out from the camp seven days, and the people journeyed not till Miriam was brought in again. What is so tragic about the situation? Family members. Moses leading the people. Aaron, his spokesperson. Miriam, was she an ungodly woman? No. Do we remember what Miriam did for Moses? Anybody? She protected him, right? When he's born. She made sure what happened. That his earthly mother would nurse him under the the Pharaoh's wife, right? Miriam was not an ungodly woman. Aaron wasn't an ungodly man. And Moses was chosen to lead the people. And look what we have here. Hath the Lord indeed only spoken by Moses? Hath he not spoken through us too? And the Lord heard it. We're going to focus on six key principles when it comes to criticism. Remember, we're looking at it in a negative context. We can talk later, if you'd like, offline about how do we constructively criticize. It's a totally different topic. Six key principles. Number one, criticism is a sin. Number two, it's petty. Number three, it's self-exalting. Number four, it's extremely painful. Number five, it's often inadvertent. And lastly, it stops. It plugs any flow of God's blessing in our life. And we'll see it actually can affect those that come after us too. Number one, criticism is sin. Look at Miriam's experience in Numbers chapter 12. Aaron's response in verse 11 was what? I bese- I'll ask my Lord, I beseech thee, lay not the sin upon us, wherein we have done foolishly and wherein we have sinned. How many of us would rather call it, you know what, my criticalness, my critical attitude, my thinking, whatever you want to call it, that's just a bad habit. <laughs> I got to get over that bad habit. It's just a fault. The Lord heard it. And you saw the repercussions of what they said. Criticism is petty. Was the real issue Moses' wife? Did he marry an Ethiopian woman? Typically, like we looked earlier, Our criticism, the statements we make, are smokescreens for our jealousy. And and what we find is we look behind the pettiness, we see that these are real heart issues. What do these heart issues look like? The inability to forgive. This leads to bitterness, where we think time heals the wound, and yet it festers, and it spoils, and it rots. And my life becomes disengaged with others. Criticism masks envy, jealousy, and resentment. Are we envious of the success of another? So we decide to tear down instead of build up. And perhaps here's the one that I didn't like to admit. Personal failure. Am I living in defeat myself? Are you discouraged by the direction of your own life? Are you harboring sin that you think nobody knows about? I don't have to disclose that. And so I hide behind the mask. It's petty, but it's also self-exalting. Why? 
Because anything that makes you feel superior is not a Christian attitude of love. And it's not conducive to your spiritual well-being. We talked about this a little bit earlier in the week, right? Criticism takes the focus off of me and my faults. And this is what it does by elevating me. It makes me look like I'm the one that knows. How many of you have a group of people? We all do. We don't like clicks, but we have them. How many of you have that person in your group? They, know, they seem to know everything about everybody, right? We have that person. And, and here's what's insidious about this, this idea of, of self-exaltation is the more we ask them for information, guess what we're doing? We're lifting them up, making them look like they're the expert. And they could be harboring all those things we just looked about on the, on, on the previous slide. It takes the focus off me and my faults and highlights me as the one who knows. But here's why. It reduces the pain of the spotlight shining on me and I get to run the spotlight. Oh, isn't that fun from my end? I get to shine the light on the hidden darkness caverns of your heart and see where the sin is. But don't you dare turn that spotlight around. So, this is huge. We like to judge others by their actions. But we judge ourselves by our intentions. Ah, I have good intentions. How many of you have heard the term, the way to hell is paid with good intentions? Criticism is painful. If you're not feeling anxiety a little bit, it feels pretty heavy in here. I feel pretty heavy. It's painful. Look at what we read in Numbers 12. Moses experienced his own earthly brother and sister turning on him. At a time when he needed help the most, they cut him down by the things they said. And I wish I was at Sister Lydia's forum. I tried. The boys were a wreck. I had to put them to sleep. But angry words, oh, let them never. Those are the kinds of things we need to remember uh, how we set the course of nature on fire by the things that we spew from our mouth. James 3 talks about. Why is it painful? Because immediate family and church members often know our faults, know where we're most vulnerable, know exactly where to hit us with the things we say or think. And constant criticism can effectively knock all of the confidence and power out of a person's life. Think about this. Not every man has the same level of faith, right? And so we ought to be considerate that the things we say might affect people differently. And, and when I read this statement, this one kind of shocked me because I hope I don't fall into this category, but some of you may have grow, grow, uh, grown up like this. Your parents constantly criticizing in the home. You're not good enough. You're never going to be good enough. Here's where it came to reality in my life. It wasn't those statements. It was, the ACC has seen the golden age already. Where's my hope? What do I have to look forward to? If the ACC has seen the golden age, but why are we here? If there's nothing to look forward to, and that's one statement, how does that make you feel? And it affects the way you serve because you feel like you're a defeatist. You didn't have a chance to get out of the gate. Young Christians, you've got no shot. Why? Golden age was in the 70s. I don't know. And so we cut down. But remember Galatians 1.10. Here's a beautiful verse. For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men, I should not be a servant of Christ. Criticism is extremely painful. And it's often inadvertent. Not everyone, and this is key, not everyone who criticizes has a wicked, awful heart. We've all, has anyone not criticized? 
Would we say we have wicked, awful hearts? No. And so it's often inadvertent. We don't maybe perhaps realize the impact of what we're saying. And look at verse 11 again from Numbers chapter 12. Aaron said, Alas, my Lord, I beseech thee, lay not this sin upon us, wherein we have done foolishly. Okay? He doesn't try and defend his statement. Lord, what I said was accurate. He shouldn't have married an Ethiopian woman, and you should speak through us too. No, he doesn't try and defend that. He recognizes that the words that he speaks carry consequences. And what we need to remember, brother and sister, in that portion of scripture that I underlined it and and made the font almost twice the size, and the Lord heard it. For every idle word, for every ill intention, what does the Bible say? God will bring me into judgment. Here's what's interesting about this whole thing, why it's so inadvertent. If I took just a breath, 10 seconds, whatever you need, before I opened my mouth and thought twice about what I'm going to say, I probably wouldn't say it. I'll never forget this statement when it comes to words. And I'm sorry if I'm repeating things that were said on, on Monday in the words form. But uh, Brother Carl Yon, it's gone long to his reward, but I'll never forget him saying this on a Sunday night. And I was just a little boy, and I heard him say, this is how powerful our words are. And he wanted to demonstrate it to uh, uh, his peer. And so he shared this story where a man went to a rooftop and took feathers. And he said, let those feathers go. The man let the feathers go. He said, now get them back. He says, I can't. He says, that's your words. You let them go, and it's too fast. You can't get them back. It's inadvertent. But if we take the minute to think before we speak, we're going to solve a lot more of the problems that we have. Lastly, criticism plugs the flow of God's blessings. And think about this for a second. How is it possible to live a holy, sanctified life where my mind is renewed every day in God's word if I'm constantly critical? It's not possible. It harms our relationship laterally, horizontally, I guess, and vertically with our Heavenly Father. And it's not worth it. It really isn't. This is maybe a subset of how Moses in Hebrews 11 describes him as one who willing to suffer the reproaches of Christ rather than to enjoy the pleasure of sin for a season, we don't might take it to that extreme, but the momentary relief that you and I get from cutting somebody down, it's not worth the damage that occurs. It really isn't. Why? Because you and I miss out on what God would pour out into our lives. How many of us have, and this is where it goes beyond just the personal, it goes to the generation, How many of us came home from a Sunday morning and had roast preacher for lunch? Tasty, right? How many of you have served up the roast preacher, right? Dressed it really nice. He was terrible. I can't believe we have preachers like this in our church. Doesn't even read the Bible or doesn't know how to interpret the Bible. Or he speaks in broken English. Why do we even vote these brothers in? You know what? There should be a timeline. There should be a limit on preachers existence. And you know what? Maybe we should vote, have a, have a renewal vote every five years. And all these things, right? We have great ideas. I'll never forget this. I served up Rose Preacher one time. I wasn't married, I was st- single, still living at home. And I started going, I don't know who it was. It was a brother in Windsor. God, I, I apologize, brother. I don't even know who you were. But I was saying something I shouldn't have been saying. This is what the response was from the head of the table on the other end. Nick and my sister's going to appreciate this. Nick, cut it out. That's it. That's all he said. 
it stopped me in my tracks. I realized, I was, what am I doing? I have unconverted brothers and sisters around the table. Here I am, serving it up, hitting them, hitting them. If only they knew how to read the Bible instead. Boom, boom, boom. Cut it out. That was the father's love for the son who saw him going down the wrong path quickly. But he was on fire for Christ. Blocks the flow of God's blessings, not only individually, but to the children. And so we need to be aware of that. This is why I wanted you to remember kritikos, right? The act of judging, the one that does the actual critique, the critic. Where do you find kritikos in the Bible? One place. This blew my mind. One place where I find the adjective criticism or criticize. Hebrews 4.12, we know it. The word of God is quick, it's alive, it's powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, pierces even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, of the joints and marrow, and is a, here's the word, discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You know the word criticize, critical, criticism? They don't exist in the King James Bible. But the word kritikos, the Greek, for which we have the word criticize and criticism, the one that is skilled in judging and fit for judging and relates to judging, is only used one time. And guess where it is? Right here. Why was Jesus able then to walk around to the Pharisees? Because I know it's in the minds of people right now. Jesus was very critical. He called them ye hypocrites, ye scribes. Who's the word of God? In the beginning was the word and word was with God and the word was God. Jesus, absolutely. Who is fit for judging? Who relates to judging? And who is skilled in judging? The Word of God. And that's why it cuts so deep. That's why it hurts me when I open the Bible and I read it, and it's cutting me apart. Because it's the only thing that rightly divides. It is the only thing fit for criticizing. Remember that. These are just the follow-ups. One time used, related to judging, skilled in judging, and fit for judging. So, oh, it's heavy in here. Overcoming a critical attitude. We've made it this far. Here we go. You ready? Pens and pencils, or look at the PDF later. We heard this last night. Number one, repent. You know what? If criticism's a sin, then I need to repent from it. If I know I'm guilty of this, I need to admit that, you know what, God? I've disagreed with you on what you think. So if you call it a sin, I need to come back to you and ask for forgiveness. I don't want to follow this path anymore. Number one, repent. Number two, remember. Remind yourself of the grace that God has shown you. Okay, instead of focusing on the lack of the lives of others, remind yourself of the lack that is in your own life and how God has graciously dealt with you rather than finding faults with you. Can you imagine if that's how God treated us, the way we treat our brother and sister and others, by fault finding? Remember the grace that he's shown towards you. And lastly, remain. Walk in the Spirit. Instead of focusing on the lies of others, make your focus to stay filled with the Holy Spirit throughout your day. This is where Romans 12, 2 comes in perfectly, right? Being not conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of my mind. The fruits of the Spirit are birthed by the Holy Spirit in you. So keep your focus on staying filled with his Spirit. And guess what? You won't have time to criticize. I guess there's one more R. <laughs> replace. So, repent, remember, remain. Now we're going to replace this critical attitude that, we've ha- that we have. And how do we do it? Well, with an attitude of love. 
I can't do that on my own. No, you can't. Absolutely you can't. But guess what? If you're a believer, truly born again believer, Romans 5, 5 tells us what? That the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. How? By the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. The inability to love is not possible. So, here's a quick side and a side. You saw the Peanuts cartoon on the opening slide, right? There's another one that I couldn't find, but here are the words from it. So, Charlie Brown pleads to Lucy. He says, you got to be more loving, Lucy. Okay? This world really needs love. You have to let yourself love to make this world a better place. And Lucy, she angrily whirls around, knocks Charlie Brown to the ground, and screams at him and says, hey, look, blockhead, the world I love, it's people I hate. Okay? And that's what it comes down to. Do I really love people? Do I have a genuine heart and care and concern for people? It's easy to love uh, inanimate things, but relationships, that takes work. But you know what? We're empowered to do it. Love defined. We're going to look at this quickly. 1 Corinthians 13, 1, 8, if you want to turn there in your Bible, because I don't have those verses all written out. And, Brother Doug, thank you for the, the segue on Monday. The word charity. Love used in this passage is agape. I'm not going on some diatribe and saying agape is God's unconditional. There's no way. He's absolutely right. Agape is used in other terms. It's Christian writers who embellish this word and make it more than it really is. You look at 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 8, you don't have to embellish anything. It tells you exactly what love is and what love does. And so let's look there. Paul takes in seven verses. Actually, it's less than seven because there's a, a little bit of an uh, intro, uh, intro in that chapter on how I speak these things. But look at these 15, 15 attributes of love. It's patient or long-suffering in the King James. It's kind. It's not jealous or it does not envy. It does not brag. It is not arrogant. It is not rude. It gives up its rights. It's not easily provoked. It thinks no evil. It rejoices not in iniquity, but it rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And so you're asking, why did I only choose three? Because it's 11.15, that's why. When you go home, this group study, CFG, time to go into what this passage, it's not for weddings only. Oh, that blows my mind. We read this at weddings only. Why? Paul's not, Paul didn't write 1 Corinthians 13 for, for, for wedding ceremonies. It comes in between spiritual gifts in chapter 12. And what is the most perfect and excellent gift is love. And he defines it not as an emotion, but as an action. Here they are, 15 of them. We're going to look at three quickly and how they relate to critical attitude. I'm running out of time. I'm sorry. Love is patient. When exercising this attitude of love, one will not lose their temper easily. You'll never say, this is your last chance. God wants us to grow in patience as we spiritually mature, and we know that. Love thinks no evil. In other words, it does not take into account a wrong suffered. And this is key, because you don't hang on to the reminders of people who wronged you. You don't have this, this any accountants in here, the open ledger. Oh, I'm waiting to close this, this here. Uh, they, checklist, right? They've racked up all these debts. We need some assets. You've got to give me something. I've got to balance this eventually. No, love doesn't think like that. Love hopes all things. Simply a step beyond believing. It's an attitude of love that has forward thinking. Always has the best interest in heart, okay? It doesn't accept failure as final in ourselves or in others. 
If we say, and we've said this, there's no hope for them. I know because I've said that. So maybe you haven't, but I've said it. I said, you know what? They were raised in Hungary. They were whatever, born in Europe. You know, they married that person. They're always going to be like that. And what do we chalk it up to? That's just their personality. If I don't hope that they can change, I'm not showing the love of God. Because love hopes all things. The truth and love at work. Love without truth, how many of you heard this? Is too soft. It's a flim-flam. I love you, you love me. We're a happy family. Sorry, Barney, that doesn't work. <clears throat> without love, the truth is too hard. So what's the two together? Speaking the truth in love is what is required, Ephesians 4.15. This is where it's going to get interesting in the minds of this room. I hope we have a little bit of time to discuss this. When? Because you might be in your mind, you're like, brother, I... I can't say anything. I might see something, but I can't say anything. How many of us work in a workplace where safety culture is driven home, and our our motto is, if you see something, say something. 200% accountability, right? Well, wait a second here. I can't be critical. I can't say anything. Wait, not so fast. When to speak. Major issues require action. Minor require acceptance. What is a major issue? Well, here's one. Is this critical path? If failure to take action will produce major fallout, that is doctrinal error, infidelity, criminal activity, abusive behavior, I better speak up. If the person you love is involved in sin that could destroy him or someone else, love must get involved. But remember, love does not rejoice in iniquity, and that's why I can't let it go on. I have to say something. Number two major issue. Is the problem chronic? And this is where maybe it touches home for a lot of us. If the same things are happening repeatedly... It doesn't have to be something severe. A gentle word of correction can bear good fruit. Colossians 4, 6 reminds us that our words are to always be seasoned with grace, right? If you're close enough to someone to observe chronic patterns, you have to get involved. And that kind of leads us into our major issue number three. Does your proximity imply responsibility? Okay? Somebody shares something with you, and you're close enough to them that you can sit down and have that conversation. It is incumbent upon you as a brother and sister in Christ, for the spiritual well-being of that person to say something. But how close are you to the situation, right? Not, I heard it from him, from him, from him. I'm going to exact judgment. Wait a second here. There's a difference between how we might respond to our neighbors, coworkers, and friends than to our families and church members. And that's true, right? If you see your neighbor's kid run across the street, you say, hey, 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 Johnny, Johnny, slow down, slow down. There could be cars. Oh, but if my son doesn't look twice before he crosses the road, what's going to happen? I'm going to talk to him a little bit differently. Well, maybe the rod of correction comes out, right? Okay. Minor issues. Are you ready? Breathe. This is hard to accept. It was hard for me to accept. Personal preferences. Ah, why do they prefer that? When we have this. Personality differences. They clash. Right? So major issues require action. When to speak. Minor issues require acceptance on some levels. Personal preferences, personality differences, cultural differences. Ah. Little irritations that are typically amoral. These are the ones that really get under the skin, right? What do those look like? Those are the things that bust marriages apart and friendships. These tend to be the things that cause the major problems ultimately in the church today. 
because I can't get over it not being my way. Why do they do it like that? I know better. I know how they should do it. And I live my whole life like that. And it's a personal preference. It's a personality difference that God can work on. It's a cultural difference. It's a little irritation that's amoral, meaning it's not immoral and it's not moral. And those sometimes are hard to define. We've had a spiritual liberty forum, I think, years ago. Pull up the notes. Go through it again. It's always good to remind ourselves. So, what is the proper perspective? 1 Corinthians 13, 8, beginning says what? Charity never ceases. Love never fails. But it's not a wishy-washy sentimentalism, and it's not harsh brutality either. But it's the truth and love perfectly combined, God's selfless love. This is the song that kept coming to my mind was when I was putting this thing together. And you know the song. It might even be in the camp book. He giveth more grace as our burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength as our labors increase. To added afflictions, he addeth his mercy. To multiply trials, he multiplies peace. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power, no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Too many of us, myself included, absolutely, are takers. And we take, and we take, and we take. And maybe it's just taking the time to say something we shouldn't say. When was the last time I gave an encouraging word? A word of exhortation. A word of edification. Offered a prayer for a situation that everybody else was criticizing. I need to give more. We have time for some questions, answers, discussion. Pardon me? I have till 22. What, what does that put me at for time-wise? So I got like 20 minutes? We might not need 20 minutes. We might actually be able to get out of here early. But it all depends on your discussion and your questions. If I can't answer your question, hopefully we can answer it together. Any thoughts on a critical attitude, replacing it with love, personal struggles, testimonies, anybody wants to share? I don't have canned questions. I wanted to keep it light, but I also wanted some discussion. Go ahead. So the PDF has already been submitted to the CD group that puts the audio stuff, so later you can go back. I did go through it rather quickly, not presenting the entire thing in Beverly Hills, not knowing how long it would take, so I apologize. Avram. Did everybody hear that? Speak into the mic if you can. I believe we're most critical of other Christians so we can be more comfortable with our Christian lives. Oh, look what they're doing. When we're sinning the same level, just as much in another category that we're trying to get our eyes off. Right. And that's where criticism is self-centered, right? It uh, takes the spotlight and puts it on everybody else so I don't have to be in the spotlight. A lot of times I personally underestimate the power of prayer. And um, I remember there's this, this one sister in our church that I always had a critical attitude about and just she struggled with the same thing over and over again. And it wasn't one of my struggles, so I was very condemning of it internally. And, um, and later I realized that she was actually trying to change. I just heard it from somebody else, you know, she was praying about it. And at that moment... I realized I have never prayed for her. All I've been doing is harboring this bitterness and like, why does she have to be like that? If she's a Christian, that's not a Christian attitude. And I, I, God didn't stop me in my tracks until, until I saw that she wanted to change, but it was very difficult. And 
that that made me realize, you know, if if I truly loved her, prayer would have been my first resort. Absolutely. And that's why when we choose to dwell upon the perceived fault of someone, we may not know the whole story. Any other one up here, Margaret and Erica? Sorry, Matt, I won't suggest throwing the microphone. But. I think one thing that we have to be very, very careful of is that we do not judge the other person's motives. You may think you see a certain way. You may think they're doing wrong. But judging a motive can be the most damaging of all. Absolutely. Great point. Uh, something that we started practicing in our house uh, a few years ago, and I'm thankful for my husband for this, is along with what you were saying about take that pause, take that breath, uh, we started to say, is it fruitful? Does it encourage? And is it going to uplift that person? Because if it doesn't, it's not worth saying, regardless of the context. Absolutely. I would encourage you, if you, if you use, uh, you don't have to use this book or uh, as background, even this presentation, but we created the smoke screen to identify a critical attitude. Create another acronym or whatever it takes to do exactly what she just shared. What are the things that I can focus on in a situation to ask myself to stop and consider? You know, in our industry, we call it take two. I need to take two before I perform this task. And I need to verify where I'm at. Is everything in place? Do I have the right procedure? Blah, 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 blah. Same thing. Take two. Take a minute. Is this going to be fruitful? Will this, will this help them? Will this build them up? Will this exalt me more than it will them? All those things. Those are important things, brother and sister, that they're practical, right? This is where the rubber meets the road kind of stuff that we can put into practice. Okay. So the acronym THINK, she's saying, as a teacher, perhaps relates more to bullying in, in a school or can be used for, the, for something like that. I see a hand here and a hand here. Being a social worker, I see a lot of unspoken words as well. And that we also need to be very careful of. We talk about the words, we talk about the criticisms, but the unspoken words can easily pierce the heart just as much. And we need, if we're going to be thinking about helping someone, we need to include them. We need to meet the rubber at their road, not the rubber at our road. Great point. In, um, in my family, uh, my brother-in-law started a very nice thing that if we talk about somebody and we say a bad thing, immediately to say two good things about that person. Okay. So they, they, they have something. If you're going to say something bad, you better... <laughs> excuse me. I'm not laughing. I just... <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> right at that moment, it was the phlegm. <clears throat> I was struggling to admit that, uh, can I find two good things to say about that person? No. Simple things like that, right? And like I said, we can have a forum on how to constructively criticize. Some people, there's teachers in here, they talk about the sandwich method, right? Deliver the bread... That's something good. Squeeze in the, the harsh and then sandwich it with a compliment again, right? So there's the two and one. Whatever works for you, but I agree. Little, little things like that can help. Two, two up there. You're going to have to show Dan with that jackhammer in the background. Perfect. Uh, another follow-up chapter to this, uh, which I think 
we've had a, a form on in the past, perhaps, is Romans 14. Brother Doug touched on that, about Christian liberties. First verse talking about uh, he that is weak in the faith, faith, and weak in the faith, weak in the faith, receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations, right? Understanding, maybe not every, and he goes on, and one of you observes a day higher than another, one of you eats strong meat or not. That's another great chapter. That's a follow-up to this type of a lesson uh, that we can employ. Shekinah? Um, I know for myself, I took child development in school, and we were taught that one of the key principles is that development proceeds at individual rates. And that's the same with the children of God. Sometimes maybe one person will grow really quickly in a certain area of Christianity, but they're weaker in another area, and it doesn't make them any less loved or any less um, a child of God. We are all his children, even though we might not be on the same level spiritually. Fantastic point. I've struggled with that, especially counseling. I expect everybody to go through the same repentance and conversion I did. How many of you have done that, sitting on the other side of that person? You say, are you kidding me? You mean you didn't, you didn't know that you're supposed to do this or that? And What have they been preaching, right? And right away you start to, to criticize on, on their upbringing, maybe their parents. Ah, the parents obviously didn't get involved in this life. And, and you struggle with them all the way, and you say, are they, are they converted? I don't know, because they're, they're not resonating with me. And that was very difficult for me to, to realize, you know what? God made us individually. Our experiences become individual at times. There will be things that are similar, and it all ought to be based on repentance towards God and faith in Jesus Christ. Those have to be fundamental. But the way those are experienced are different than my life and somebody else's, and that's important. That we don't hold it over somebody's head and say, well, they didn't go through this. They can't, get, they can't be baptized. Any other thoughts? Tony, microphone, Matt, if you can, without falling. I don't know if that will make sense to share here. How old are you now? Oh, 1982, October 21st. I hate to admit it. I'm turning 32 in October. Okay, so it must have been about 10 years ago. Um, I was teaching class 20 and 21 years old. I don't know if you remember that. I do remember, like yesterday. <laughs> And we, I love to teach that class. Yes. And we came out, and I was really on a high. My God, so these guys were very informative. We exchanged a lot of ideas. They challenged me. I challenged them. Oh, my Lord, this is, this is tremendous. And then you walked by my side, and you said, um, Brother Tony, why do you have your wedding band on? Your wedding, wedding band on. I thought, we, Brother Nick, this is my our culture. I mean, I, I'm new to the church, and my wedding band means that I'm, I'm married. And we discussed all sorts of scripture, and you weren't convinced, and I wasn't convinced. But then later I thought, if Brother Nick had a problem with my, with my ring, he probably didn't hear a word that we discussed about in the class. And probably there are other people who are doing the same. So I decided I'm going to take off my ring, and I never wore it since, not because I was convinced it's ungodly, but because I thought my teaching was a lot more important than having my wedding band on. And when I saw you having this floor, I said, my Lord, I'm going to come to the next forum. Council Critical. Took 12 years, love. brother. My goodness. 12 years. And, I, and I'm learning every day. And I'm learning by the brothers. And, and I want to encourage any young brothers. Find older brothers in your church who've experienced a lot more than you in life. Share a fresh perspective with you. Share their experiences with you. And this is what's key. Because I, I, I can share a forum like this doesn't mean my faith has been compromised. I'm not giving up something. What I'm realizing is not everybody's going to be like me. Thankfully. 
And we have to remember that. We're not going to walk around with a bunch of individuals like ourselves and expect them to think and act and do exactly like I do. And yet God knows the motives of the heart. And I cannot judge motives. Sister Margaret brought that up perfectly. Thank you for sharing that. Any other thoughts? Philip. Just very briefly, um, one verse that <clears throat> stood out to me, uh, um, especially when I was having trouble with other people in church, is uh, the verse that says that God hath put the members in the body as it pleased him. And that really gave me pause. Because, uh, you know, sometimes we think people might be um, extraneous. We, you know, it would be better if they weren't here. But God put them here. Yep. So then the problem really is with me and my perspective. Fantastic. The deep heart issues are what come out as we let God search our hearts, right? And we see what's, what's hiding, the bitterness, the unforgiveness, the anger, the anxiety, all those things. I've never let go of, and I harbor them, and they hold me back, and they keep me critical. A couple more before we go. If not, Mike? Even further with what Phil's saying is, you know, we're saying the body, we think of maybe our own denomination, but even further, outside of our denomination. It's easy to say, well, you know what, it's the body, okay, but even further, uh, who God placed in the body, we're not to judge or to uh, look at them any different, because God's the Father. Um, even harder than controlling the tongue, perhaps, is forgiveness. And, uh, you know, that's what you, you mentioned, that when you say those words, those words have been said, and I can say I forgive but when I see that person, that scar, that, those comments that, that that person made, and I know I've done that in other people's lives. I'm sure I've said and hurt other people, but it comes up. It's, you know, you're watching this video of that, that moment when they say that to you. So I think uh, a tough thing is even to forgive and to learn how to forgive and perhaps any information on that. Brother Glenn, we just got a suggestion for next year's forum, forgiveness and how to forgive. And I'm not saying Brother Mike is uh, volunteering, but somebody seemed... <laughs> Somebody might be uh, interested in that, so. There you go. <laughs> Other thoughts? One more? We have such a wonderful fellowship that we don't know how to cherish it, I think. We want everyone to fit in a certain mold and go through the exact same experiences. And if we don't <clears throat> see people as we would want to see them, brothers and sisters, or even people who grew up in the church, we often push them out. And we need to be careful of that because there is no other church that has such a blessed fellowship as we do. And I have been to other churches. I have seen them. And they have not a candle to what we have. Let's cherish this with each other and let's nurture it and not cause people to want to leave. Thank you. Let's close with those words. Thank you for your participation and attendance. Thank you.